Imagine, a podcast series by Imagine Theatre. Hello again, I'm Martin Ballard and welcome to episode 53 of this podcast series and the second part in our occasional series looking at the popular pantomime titles. For more information, go to their website at www.imaginetheatre.co.uk. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can still listen to them. We've had some fabulous guests so far from the Imagine Theatre headquarters team to performers and backstage teams at the various Imagine shows. We've talked about how pantomime is produced, its history and, of course, its future. And there are many more episodes to come as well from one of the UK's biggest producers of pantomime and children's theatre. Now, in the last episode, we celebrated the 18th birthday of Imagine Theatre with managing director Steve Bowden and a number of people who contributed to the success of this company. This time, though, I've been joined by Imagine's artistic director, Eric Potts, and director, producer and dame at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry, Ian Lachlan, for the next in our occasional series looking at the most popular pantomime titles. And this time, we're turning our attention to Jack and the Beanstalk. Eric and Ian, how are you? Hi, Martin. Very well, thank you. Are you? Very well. And Ian, it's interesting, the last episode we talked about the 18th birthday of Imagine Theatre, because that's, of course, when the company was passed over to Sarah and Steve from you and the rest of the Telltale Stroke Wish team. That's correct, yes. yeah. <laughs> seems a long time ago. <laughs> We're going to talk about Jack and the Beanstalk today. I think it's a really interesting one because... We've spoken in the past, Eric, about Cinderella and, you know, a lot of the panto titles come from fairy tales, Grimm's Brothers and so on. But Jack and the Beanstalk's origins are really folk tales, aren't they? Yeah, they are. It's an interesting one uh, when you look at it in the overall portfolio of the um, regular pantomime titles that we work on nowadays in that it's, it's a British folklore tale rather than a sort of foreign based fairy tale origin. It's, it actually has origin in Cornish um, folklore originally. It was first recorded in 1734, so we're going back a bit um, in an old folk tale of Jack Spriggins and the magic bean, um, the enchanted bean rather. So that's that's kind of its first recorded telling, if you like. But of course these folk tales go back in law uh, way beyond that, um, handed down from generation to generation. I think there was even a mention in King Lear of, of this particular tale, Ian. So it's it's rich in English heritage, isn't it? Yeah, most certainly is. Uh, it is one of the, the folk tales and uh, one of the best pantos, I think. So it's got everything, really. But, of course, the panto that we that I do, certainly, usually, differs slightly from the, the actual tale itself. Because I always find it was sometimes with the, the folk tales, the original folk tales, it was the same with Puss and Boots and things like that, is that the morals aren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely evolved over time, hasn't it? And I think it's fair to say, Ian, it has one of the most famous catchphrases in that if you were to shout fee-fi-fo-fum, everybody would immediately know what to say next. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know why that is. It's probably because it's, it's been televised and they've done all sorts of things. And I think it, and, and it's a very popular children's story. And the whole thing, the whole thing about the giant and all that sort of stuff, it's just people, people love it. It's, it's great storytelling, really. We've already spoken about some of the unique elements in this, Eric, and the fee-fi-fo um, catchphrase is, is one of those. Ian just mentioned the giant uh, and, of course, the beanstalk as well. These are you know, some of the unique elements to this story which set them apart from other pantos. Very much so. And, of course, challenges to panto producers like Imagine. 
but the spectacle that can be created in uh, within Jack and the Beanstalk is great. You have these moments, what um, David Wood, the national children's playwright, would call a suddenly. He likes to have a suddenly on every page of his script, and those are real suddenly moments within this telling of the tale, the, the appearance of the beanstalk and the giant, um, and of course, even going further back in the narrative, the appearance of Daisy the cow, or uh, mm. whatever whatever she's named. There are lots of great moments visually and narratively within the tale that make it such a great panto subject. And I agree with you. It is it's one of my favourites as well because it's it's pure adventure, um, which I think all pantos should be. Even the, the more romantic tales have got a romantic adventure narrative running through them. But Jack has such a strong sort of hero at the heart of it, looking after his family, looking after the village that are suffering at the hands of the giant in the in the clouds above. So it's it's real good versus evil stuff. And Ian's right to the extent if you look back at some of the grim tales of the brothers Grimm tales and others the morals were very were very dubious and some of the actions that were taking place like the ugly sisters cutting their toes off so they could fit into the crystal <laughs> slipper and things like that there's a certain degree of modernization which has had to take place over the years and jack is uh, no exception to that jack and the beanstalk has got so many elements and, and elements that the audience want to see you mentioned before the cow and, and uh, i mean you've got jack and his his mum and the cow which are always in the traditional story. So is the beanstalk, so is the giant. But when you come to Panto, we don't have the hen with the golden egg, uh, and but we do have the harp. But the story kind of changes. See, in the original story, the stories that the children are, are familiar with, Jack gets the, the magic beans and he, the, the beanstalk grows and he goes up to the giant. But the giant really hasn't done anything. You know, he, he just is up there existing somewhere. And uh, he he meets the giant's wife, and the wife hides him in the, the oven so the giant doesn't get to him. But Jack ends up stealing the things from him, like the golden harp, like the, the hen with the golden <laughs> eggs, and that sort of that lays the golden eggs and stuff like that. And then he eventually chops the beanstalk down, and the giant gets killed. So uh, the giant hasn't really done anything. Whereas I, I always feel with today's pantos, we just have to be very careful about that, you know. And I, and that's why we, we lose the hen, usually in our panthers. And, uh, but we have the golden heart, but the golden heart belongs to the village, as it was, yeah, as it were. So uh, it looks after the village and it, it gives it prosperity. And it's the giant we play as the baddie because he gets, you know, he, he, he dies in the end, really, because we chop down the beanstalk and he falls. So uh, we, we tend to treat him as the baddie so that he gets his come up and sat at the end. And we also have, of course, the comedy baddie, Who's his sidekick, so that we can we can have that dialogue with the 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 bad side of, uh, of the pantory all the time. But there's a comedy character, a comedy baddie uh, in flesh group. So uh, panto does differ slightly. It does, and we we spoke about this in the last episode with the ugly sisters um, or the the stepsisters, as they're they're often known these days, being sort of comedy baddies. And you know, when you are a, a dame, and I know that you've both played ugly sisters, that can that dynamic can be very different when you when you're playing ugly sisters to dame because you you've got to be evil as well as funny at times. Whereas with flesh creep. He embodies all the evil, if you like. I mean, even when the giant appears, the audience don't often boo because it's such a dramatic effect and scary for kids. You know, it's flesh creep that really gets all the boos, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. There are certain ways to play flesh creep, or if you have a female baddie, a female presenting baddie, we we tend to call them poison ivy. But you you can 
present them as being out and out evil for themselves, serving the giant. You can present them as being forced to serve the giant so that they have a, an inner goodness which kind of redeems them at the end when, the, you know, I, I was only doing it because I was told to sort of thing, so that there is a certain accessibility to the character. But it's certainly sort of throughout they are seen as the um, the evil influence, and as you say, the if in many ways, if you get it right with the giant's appearance, the kid should almost forget to boo because it is such a, a moment, a sort of impact moment within the story. But we, as Ian said, just to create that pantomimic good versus evil balance, we've sort of created the giant as a, a force for bad, um, who, you know, is is taking stuff from the village of Maryvale or uh, reaching down and picking up people to eat for his supper and things like that, just so that our hero Jack does have something to fight against rather than just being an opportunistic thief as he as he has been <laughs> in some of the original folklore versions. And Ian, we mentioned the cow, of course, and, you know, for the dame, the slosh scene in in this, you know, can be so much fun. But the comedy value of uh, two people in a cow suit is invaluable, isn't it? uh, Absolutely. The cow is such a fantastic character. And, uh, you know, there is we have the the original, the the, the kind of traditional kind of cow costume, which which uh, we we use with two people inside it. Last year when I did Jack and Beanstalk, I decided I wanted a almost like a cartoon cow, a large body and little thin legs. And uh, I decided not to have uh, the cow's mouth working or eyes working. I thought I, I decided to make the cow's ears work this year. <laughs> and the cow was all sorts of different colours as so it was very bright. And it just... Everybody talked about the cow. It just worked so well. The, the, the ears worked so well for what the, how the cow was feeling all the time, whether <laughs> he was sad or happy or excited or the rest of it. It was a really good experiment, really. But the cow itself is so integral to the... To, to the and, 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 of course, they get sold in the end and we lose the cow for a good chunk of the panto. But it always brings Daisy back in the end and it always gets a cheer when Daisy comes yeah. back in the end because they, they just love it. They love the cow. Uh, and if it's done properly with the milking routine and all that sort of stuff, it's great fun. It really is. Yeah, the pathos as well is incredible. Uh, you know, that um, getting rid of Daisy, sending Daisy to market and so on. I'll ask you as well, Ian, but Eric, first of all, as a dame, how does Dame Trot rank alongside Frankie and others? Oh, it's a great part because you you do get to play a bit of everything you've got the broad strokes comedy you've got the you know the slosh routine in the dairy that she runs that obviously the cow is there to to service um so you can have a great big slosh comedy routine but then you also it's almost along the lines of mother goose you she get then gets to play a little bit of pathos as she realizes that um jack has been duped into selling Daisy the cow for a bag of magic beans and their future hasn't been saved after all and they've lost what was most important to them um, their beautiful family cow so there's there's a lot of depth to the character as well as the, the normal broad strokes comedy that you associate with the dame and also with her her two sons Jack our hero character being one and then the comic be it Silly Billy or whatever they want to call Simple Simon as well so you've you've got plenty in there and then in many versions, including the one that Ian was talking about at the Belgrade at Coventry last year, which was absolutely super, they get to join in the adventure and, and uh, go up the beanstalk and be part of the adventure at the top of the uh, 
double the beanstalk in in the giant's domain so yeah bit of everything it's a lovely role you're absolutely right it was a fabulous show at the belgrade last year you seem to be enjoying yourself more than ever ian how does dame trot rank alongside other dames as far as you're concerned oh she's right up there really uh one of the best one of the best Uh, it's it's almost neck and neck with with a twanky she has a bit more pathos you know with Mm. the fact that she's this matriarchal character and uh trying to hold the family together with nothing uh and jack is is he's just he's just he's he's into an adventure he's he's off he's off and uh, and and running and uh, she can't believe that uh, you know he doesn't do any work anyway but she can't believe that he's this becomes this hero and and as, as eric was saying you know in, in our show we actually join them at the top of the beanstalk so we get all that stuff of uh the ghost routine and stuff in the in the castle and meet the giant and we get involved with all that <laughs> much. To, I mean, Jack can't he can't bear the fact that his mum has actually come up the beanstalk and joined him. <laughs> it's such a he's, she's such a lovely character. I, I mean, I I prefer doing Dame, playing Dame Tugley's sister anyway, but I, I just think she's she uh, has a, a sort of kind of winning character with the audience, and I do love playing her. She's she's, she's lovely, just right really. That the story helps so much with her. And that can, the way she fits into the story. I think you just mentioned something there that we overlooked, perhaps. And um, you know, one of the ways that young people, children, actually relate to the story is through the lead character, in this case, Jack, and the embarrassing mum. You know, oh, mum, yeah. you know, you're embarrassing me again. And kids relate to that, don't they? Oh, they certainly do. <laughs> yeah, and and although Jack doesn't really talk directly to the audience, in our pantries, it doesn't really directly talk to the audience. Uh, the audience are with Jack the whole way because he wants to do good, and he and he's and and as you say, they see they see a lot of themselves in him because he's he's a bit rebellious and finds life quite hard, and he wants he doesn't quite know what he wants to do, but and then he falls in love with the princess, and 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 she he goes off to rescue her and all the rest of it. They relate to Jack, and uh, and although they have lots of fun with his with the brother. So with Simon, uh, they do relate to Jack and the fact that he is almost a superhero by the end. All of this applies to whether the character is played by a man or we have a traditional principal boy, Eric. But you know, Ian mentioned something there that we haven't spoken about before, and that is who should or shouldn't talk directly to the audience. You know, my feeling is that story-based characters really should stay within the story and then comic the dame, the baddie, people like that can step out, step down the apron, if you like, and directly speak with the audience. What do you think? Very much with you there, Martin. I have in, in my little uh, panto phrase book what I call my story monitors, and they are the characters like Jack, Princess Jill, the ones that move the narrative along. To be honest, they're kind of the hardest roles in panto because they've got to keep the, the story moving while uh, the others are getting the laughs and, and having that fun interaction and the ability to ad lib with the audience. But that, so, so your comedy characters, uh, your dame, and in this particular tale, Simple Simon, they will have their direct address to the audience, as will flesh creep in order to generate the booze 
necessary. And then you have a fairy character as well who mm-hmm. will talk to the audience very probably in rhyme. And then you have, as I say, your story monitors that are there simply to move that adventure along. Jack, Princess Jill, possibly a squire or a king um, who really should just probably get on with it, go with the flow as far as the comics are concerned, if they are ad-libbing or anything, but be ready to pick up that story and move it forward a pace so that people aren't looking at the watches thinking about when the last bus home is. It, it sort of still cracks along, but you have everything that an audience is expecting from a, a traditional panther. Now, in terms of the script and the music, casting, even the set, props, costumes and so on, Ian, I don't know how many uh, Jack and the Beanstalks you've written and produced over the years, directed and starred in as well. But what are the things you need to bear in mind? It's something I, I um, and, and picking up on what Eric said, yeah, I totally agree with him 100%. It's all about telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I say this to the cast at the beginning of rehearsals. If, if we don't tell the story, there's just no point in being there. We're very much telling a story and our story characters have to stick to that and push the story through to allow the dame and the comic and possibly the bad day to weave in and out of that story and give them the freedom to talk to the audience and to cause a little bit of mayhem. Uh, um, otherwise, it, is, it just it doesn't work. And and when you sit down to do Jack and the Beanstalk, to, to write it, you ha- it's, it's a bit like a lot of the traditional pantomimes. There are touchstones that you have, uh, I feel I have to, reach as we go through the story you know the touchstones of jack uh, are the fact that um we have to find out first you know about the about the family and how how the strap for cash and all the rest of how they're struggling all that sort of thing how they love daisy how they, 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 they they've got the dairy and all that sort of stuff the touchstone of that sort of we also have the touchstone of uh, of the royalty uh, uh, who are we always give them the, the, the look after the harp so they've got that that responsibility we've got you know we we move on to the touchstones of um of jack beginning to get closer to the to the princess and really liking the princess and and then flesh creep being told to get the harp and 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 to get the princess uh, kidnap the princess and get the princess off all these touchstones and and by the end of the first half we have to reach that touchstone of the of the you know and of course we've got the the fairy godmother who has to give jack the beans have the idea of the beanstalk because we can't get up to the castle and have the idea of the magic beanstalk you know and then we've got the touchstones of, of in the in the second half of the giant and all that sort of thing and how we we escape from the giant and then then dispose of the giant in the end so with a lot of other panthers there are these strong touchstones that the audience i feel always want to see and always want to feel that are there so that they can follow the story through and for the young children who are coming to see it for the first time they have to have those to hold on to so that the story is nice and clear so uh when i when i start to write my, my synopsis to begin with then then i i have these little islands of information that that, uh, that 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 I have to reach every now and again to 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 make that story work two key things as well jeopardy that threat is always there and the adventure that that goes on 
really key elements. Uh, the music is important here, Eric, isn't it? Because in any panto, it, it's not just a, a pause. It's it's got to take the story on. And whether you use you know commercial songs that everybody knows or you have specially composed songs, they've got to fit in, haven't they? Yeah, very much so, Martin. They've got to be justifiable, um, as you say, whether or not they're originals or cover versions of, of popular songs. They've got to sit nicely within the story. And it's something we spend a, a lot of time thinking about and getting right. Not only the feel of the songs, but the lyrics. You get into kind of an odd territory with lyrics because you think, oh, we can we can tweak those slightly to make them fit better with the story. But if the song's worth doing, it's a song that's well known. And if you alter the lyrics, the kids should all be singing along to it, or the adults. And they go, oh, that, that, that wasn't what I was expecting to hear. So you're in kind of dodgy territory. So it's about finding a song that ideally, without too much alteration, will sit nicely within the narrative, pick out those moments um you know there's a lovely moment when when the princess is at the top of the beanstalk having been uh, dragged up there by flesh creep for the uh, the giant and she she sort of says oh, I, I need a hero you think oh it's a good couple of songs that would fit into that um, <laughs> into that thing so it, it's about getting the right music that also will uh, help build that sense of jeopardy will help build that sense of adventure but also augment the tale that we're telling. Yeah, I mean, I, my panthers used to always have new music and new new songs. I never ever used covers, uh, but um, I came round to the fact that I, that there are some covers that are really worthwhile using, and and, and the audience do like to hear songs that they know. Uh, sometimes as well, it does help. It helps with them and the enjoyment of the panto. I find the music for a panto the hardest thing of all. I mean, Eric will know this as well. I mean, we're finding finding traditional routines and routines or, or even taking traditional routines and just bringing them up to date or adjusting them in some way so that you've got good strong comedy routines is hard uh, but it's I, I love I love doing that I love I love trying to seek them out a lot I, I love going on the internet and looking at some of them I love uh, making some up making new ones up but songs oh my goodness uh, I, I always struggle with 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 deciding what songs to use and that's why I sometimes end up, especially the first song of a panto, you know, the welcoming song, that big song where we welcome the audience almost and, the, and, and, and the, that energy that you need just to, to, to spark the hope to, to panto off. I find that the hardest of all. And that's why I end up quite often writing new ones for the beginning, which sets the scene and gives us a springboard for the pantomime there are one or two things you know that one or two covers i've used before for the beginning songs which work at absolute treat but you can't use them all the time so uh yeah i find the music quite hard martin i must say i think a lot of the challenges whether it be casting or uh set costumes and so on centers around the actual giant in this one doesn't it because the casting of it is really important because it has to be somebody who can physically carry the large costume on stilts or however the giant is played and obviously that in staging terms is also a bit of a challenge it is and i know um there are a few um, producers directors who avoid jack and the beanstalk for that very reason they find it difficult to achieve the impact that we all want to achieve with the appearance of 
of the giant and how that is facilitated. Now, normally we have some uh, one of our poor male dancers who you know spends his first act dancing his socks off and looking fabulous, and then most of the second act inside the most horrible, sweaty <laughs> uh, contraption, trying to look as as big and evil as possible as the giant. And it, it, it you know, you, the, whatever is round about this poor person has got to have real impact and and look as big as possible within the logistics of actually staging it sometimes in in quite small uh, theaters you know so it's it's about creating that moment one of the many moments we talked about and getting the right person who is physically strong enough to make it work to make, you know to make the the movement necessary as fluid and as believable as, as possible. Yeah, I have a vague recollection uh, of this. I don't know if you've got any horror stories as well, Ian, but I have a recollection of a technical rehearsal, not a show that I was in, on a raked stage where the big doors at the back of the stage opened, the giant came out, literally came down the hill and fell flat on his face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> the, the, the poor actors used to be on plaster of stilts and things didn't they which is really really hard to, to walk on even in the level uh, was that a crew was it no yes it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've seen some terrible giants in my time i remember going to birmingham hippodrome many many years ago it was um john inman and i went with steve bowden actually uh we went together to see the show and it was it was a, lot, I mean, a great show as usual with John and all that. He was very funny. But when it came to the giant. It was like someone had just put a big duvet over them uh, and walked on stage. And we thought, <laughs> and and that was and that was when Steve and I sat down and said, we have got to sort this out. There are no decent giants around, and we have because people were using kind of like big fingers coming onto the stage or a big boot stepping onto the stage, big cutout boot or something like that. A lot of, a lot of, you never ever saw a giant that could interact with the actors. And so we decided to sit down at that point and sort that out. And that's when we got Neil Scanlon who, who did all the tweenies and did Babe in the City and everything. And he made a big animatronic heads for us for the giants, which turned out to be quite heavy actually. But, um, we, 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 it was the first time we actually tried to, to do giants on stage that could actually interact with Jack and have a fight and all the rest of it. Heads were quite big, they were heavy, the, the legs were too short, but it didn't quite, I mean, it wasn't quite as good as, as we could have got, but it was a big step forward. I mean, I think the ultimate was the, the not the last one I did, but the one before when my daughter made me a big animatronic one. It was just, perfect it was so good because she makes them for star wars and things like that she makes the creatures and she made this one for me it looked right you know the legs weren't too short and he could walk around he could jump he could he could fight and all that sort of thing and that's that's what kind of we were aiming for in the end but it's taken us quite a number of years to get there it's such a difficult thing to do as eric said there's nothing worse than a, a low budget giant except <laughs> perhaps i i have a recollection of seeing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs many years ago and it was a low budget production where the first dwarf came on stage and said you six you wait out there I'll sort this out <laughs> <laughs> yes. so with, Jack, with, with Jack and the Beanstalk as a title Eric it's obviously a popular one so that 
takes the pressure off maybe marketing and box office a little bit? It, it does. It does seem to prove popular. It's one of those strange ones because a lot of Panto titles we find, and I think we mentioned this during our Cinderella chat, is if it has been done by Disney, then it's further mm-hmm. up the scale of what will sell so that subjects that haven't been done, like Dick Whittington and Mother Goose, uh, are less popular at the box office irrespective of the fact they're actually really, really great pantos. Jack is a strange one in that it hasn't been fully done by Disney, uh, although there are various versions out there, but it does still sell. And I think we've kind of touched on why in that it is such a good adventure story with all sorts of aspects to it, broad strokes, comedy, um, great adventure, a little bit of pathos, all the characters you would hope uh, and expect to see. So yes, it does do well, takes a little bit of pressure off as you say at the box office and also there's plenty of scope within it for commercial producers like imagine to look at uh, commercial casting poster casting we've just this week announced our production uh, jack and the beanstalk at the de montford hall uh, in leicester i don't know if you're aware of that venue martin um but <laughs> it uh, we've put scott mills bbc radio 2 presenter in who would be playing the mayor of, of Maryville rather than a king. We're making him the mayor of the town who just coincidentally happens to have his own radio station, but that's uh, that's bye-bye. Uh, so it, it, again, it's it's got lots of options in there for good commercial casting and people that you know the audience want to see. And again, this shows just how flexible the title is. As long as you've got lots of the pantomime elements in there, you can tweak the story a little bit, change some of the characters around and so on. Now, I don't know about you, Ian, but at a time when society is changing and pantomimes are being criticised sometimes for things like lack of diversity of casting and maybe reinforcing racial stereotypes uh, through the narrative or some of the song choices, I actually think that maybe Jack and the Beanstalk is in a really good position. In fact, it's possibly one of the strongest titles in the canon. Yeah, I think it is. And and I I think there are less problems with Jack and the Beanstalk it can be set anywhere, uh, and 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 I think that's one of the beauties. Whereas if when you get to Aladdin, then it's very much set in a, in a specific specific place, and that's when I suppose you start getting the, getting the problems. Very true, and I think I think Ian has has uh, you know touched on something. It, it it's. Uh, the phrase that that we are dealing with, and rightly so, is cultural appropriation. And Aladdin is very much the title that not causes the most problems, but is one that you have to um, realistically be be most aware of. Whereas Jack, I suppose, possibly because it does have its folklore roots within. England, alongside Dick Whittington, for example, is less problematic as the wrong word, but is is less of a concern for panto producers who who these days, rightly so, have to make sure that the tale is told in a very empathetic and uh, correct way. And I think Jack is one that will be easier for producers to be able to to cast but uh, uh, irrespective of that i think simply as as something being on stage as representative 
of the demographic of certainly most audiences around the country. Um, imagine, and I know uh, the other Panther producers do as well, really trying to widen their diversity within the shows. Not for the sake of it, but simply because it's what should be happening now. And there's a whole range of wonderful performers that, that should be seen in Panto because of, of who will be sitting in the audience watching them. So as far as you're both concerned, Ian, first of all, uh, does Jack and the Beanstalk have a strong future? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think it's one of the, the Pantos which will go on and on because it, it, it fires up the imagination of all, all of the younger audience, the giant and all the rest of it, and that just magic Beanstalk and all the rest of it. The imagination is fired up and... and and they 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 love that storytelling. I think Jack and Beanstalk is one of the ones which will go on and on. I think Aladdin is um is another fantastic story and another great adventure story. But it's it's just it get a lot of the the pantomime companies are, are are not doing it. But I think Jack and the Beanstalk is watertight. From the point of view of Jack specifically, I think the the only real restraint these days is budget because you could, as was shown at the Palladium last year, with this incredible uh, beanstalk that grew out through the auditorium and up to the the roof of the Palladium. And Jack, the the actor playing Jack, actually climbed up it and vanished into the roof of the home of variety. It, It is quite appropriately for the tale, the sky's the limit, really. And there's all sorts of opportunities for fabulous UV scenes. And as we've talked before, great um, animatronic moments and all sorts. So it's it's something that still, I believe, has got a great future and all sort of uh, all sorts of potential to move forward as the audiences, especially the younger audiences, expectations move forward because, of course, they are, and this is a very broad strokes comment, but they are being bombarded predominantly with, you know, all the the video games and the different platforms that they are using regularly and everything that's capable within those. So to a certain extent, without losing the traditions and the values of pantomime, we have to make it recognisable for them. And I think Jack and the Beanstalk offers us a great opportunity if the purse strings will allow and it doesn't turn out to be full of beans instead of gold coins. (laughs) Always a pleasure to catch up with you both. Eric Potts and Ian Lachlan, thank you for your time. My pleasure, Pleasure, Martin. And that's about it for another episode. As I said at the very beginning of this one, there are many more fabulous guests still to come. Please subscribe through your favourite podcast app and make sure you join me next time for episode 54 when, as we're halfway through the year, it's time to take a look at the importance of the junior ensemble. I'll see you next time on Just Imagine. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of Just Imagine, the podcast series from Imagine Theatre. And you can find out more by going to www.imagintheatre.co.uk.